Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Also, I was formerly the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economies, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to keep the American Blue Economy at the forefront of conservation and prosperity. And in today's episode, we have a really neat one. We're going to talk about the role of artificial intelligence, or AI, in the American blue economy. And it's the first of a little sub-series I have on other really cool blue technologies uh, that, I'll, that I'll, we'll talk about in the next few shows and how they're helping advance our ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies. But before we begin, I'd like our listeners to know our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. So to begin the show, what is AI? What is artificial intelligence? There's a lot of talk about it. And so here's the only definition we're going to give in the show just to set the scene. And one definition of AI is computational systems able to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence, but they do so with increased efficiency, precision, and objectivity. So basically, we're talking drones, computer algorithms, and things like Alexa. And just to further the definition, a subset of AI is called machine learning. And that refers to mathematical models that are able to perform a specific task without using explicit instructions, basically in an automated way, relying on patterns and inference. And a good example of that was I did a master's thesis in 1990, where I took a bunch of imagery of the sea surface temperature imagery of the California current, and I was able to pull out patterns of eddies, basically, in an automated way, just all machine learning. And, And that's a kind of an interesting little story there, because... So many people talk about AI as being like new, and it's it's not really new. 1990 was a while ago, more than 30 years. Uh, it's just that now we have these computational resources that help us to do it much more faster and better. And then one more extension of the definition is deep learning, and we'll talk about some applications of that, which is a subset of machine learning that ut- utilizes artificial neural networks or algorithms capable of learning from unstructured or new data. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. We'll build on that with some really cool applications. And, uh, and that's where I want to bring in our guests. I have three of my former colleagues and, and three of my favorite people that I've ever worked with from NOAA that uh, are, are joining us today. And the first up is Dr. Jamise Sims. Jamise is now the Deputy Director of the Northern Gulf Institute, and she is a Strategic Advisor for Federal Partnerships at Mississippi State University. Shamise, thanks for joining us. It's so good to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and NOAA colleagues. Right on. We also have uh, currently uh, the Chief Scientist for the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, Co-ops, in NOAA's National Ocean Service, Dr. Greg Dusek. Greg, thanks for being here. Great. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. Right on. And we also have Kristen Kahn, who is a fishery biologist with NOAA's Northeast Fisheries Science Center in Woods Hole or Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Kristen, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much. It's such an honor to be here and really a privilege to discuss these interesting topics. Right on. And you've done some great things here. I can't wait to get, well, everybody has really. And let me begin with Jamise, because uh, Jamise and I had a really special relationships. I brought her on, uh, and she was the senior advisor for artificial intelligence for several years at NOAA. And, um, and we ended up doing a number of things like developing a NOAA-wide strategy for AI, as well as a strategic plan. Um, but but um, 
Jim Meese, you're an atmospheric scientist with a PhD from Howard University. And I'd like to know when you first, what was your first exposure to AI? How did you, did you, were you using it or were you learning about it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. So um, I first became introduced to artificial intelligence as an undergraduate student. During my time at Jackson State University, um, as I was pursuing my degree in meteorology, I was selected by NOAA as an educational partnership program undergraduate scholar. And within that program, there were two years of internships. The first year I participated in an internship at the Environmental Modeling Center under the National Weather Service. And my project there was actually to parameterize a model that would locate the north wall of the Gulf Stream. In order to do that, I used a genetic algorithm which was extremely interesting to me. And I can remember when Bob Grumbine first introduced uh, the topic to me and he said genetic algorithm, I had no idea of what he was talking about. And I certainly didn't know that it was artificial intelligence until much later on. Um, And the use of AI for that particular application allowed us to determine um, what the best physical parameter was to use within the model to locate Gulf Stream. So that's just an example of one of the applications um, for AI within NOAA. And of course, NOAA has been using AI now for nearly 30 years. Um, so it's certainly one of the leaders uh, with AI. Right on. That's interesting. Was it satellite data that you were doing this work when you were in your undergraduate uh, research? Yes, it was satellite data. And the model was also being initialized with another model. Um, And so it was a lot of um, number crunching, of course. But, you know, with the genetic algorithms, it does actually take the information, you know, through a genetic process, even determining the best fit for parents and things like that to determine um, what the parameter should be. And a lot of statistics also played a part in that. So if there are students, you know, that are listening um, that are interested in using AI or atmospheric sciences, you have to, of course, stay up on all of your math. <laughs> Very good. Absolutely. Gosh, Jamisa, I'm sorry that I forgot that was your undergraduate work. How That is really impressive. And for our listeners, Jamisa was part of NOAA's Educational Partnership Program, which is a great program that provides these scholarships to a, a number of the um, uh his uh, HBCUs and MSIs around the country. Um, wonderful. Well, that's a great introduction. <clears throat> we'll go to more. Um, but now let me ask the same question to Greg, who's a, been an oceanographer for a while, Greg Dusek at NOAA's Co-ops. Um, where, where was your first exposure to AI and in, in, in oceanography and the work you do? Yeah, similar to Jamise, really back in, in grad school. Um, and I think also similarly at the time, I didn't know that, you know, what I was doing was actually AI because, you know, I I think it it wasn't really utilized. uh, The term wasn't utilized as often back then. Um, And so uh, my work in grad school, so about 15 years ago, um, in part was looking at rip currents, which uh, many people probably know are, are, you know, pretty much the the, the most hazardous uh, thing at the beach. You know, we have over 100 drownings per year in the U.S. due to rip currents. And so one of the things I was working on is, better understanding them, better predicting them. Um, And, you know, diving into the research at the time, we were finding that, you know, more traditional statistical approaches weren't working that well uh, when we were trying to predict rip currents. And so we ended up using a very simple machine learning approach. It's called logistic regression. It's not anything groundbreaking, Um, but it enabled us to, you know, predict rip current likelihood from you know just a few variables from looking at waves and, and water levels and and the shape of the bottom um, and and it worked really well and that was kind of my introduction into machine learning and then um, you know actually it came full circle uh, only about a year and a half ago or so when we actually operationalized the model I developed uh, uh, here at NOAA uh, nationally um, and so um, you know kind of a, a nice transition from uh, starting in grad school and, and, and being able to see that work through uh, while at NOAA. Yeah, that's a great story to know that you could take your research and actually apply it to a life-saving um, area, uh, which I, of course, we'll talk more about that model uh, and predicting rip currents. And that you were at UNC Chapel Hill, is that right? Your PhD work? 
Yeah, that's correct. Yep, UNC Chapel Hill. That's great, Greg. Really cool. That's another neat application. So here we are, a little bit of ocean again. Jamise was looking at the Gulf Stream. Here we're looking, Greg was looking at the more fine scale application uh, of rip currents on the coast. And now, so, and it's interesting, Jamise's experience is atmospheric science, and I got Greg because he's got the ocean. Now I want to introduce Kristen Kahn, who is a fisheries biologist at NOAA's Northeast Fisheries Science Center. And she's kind of got the life science aspect of applying AI, um, which, and, and we'll talk about the blue economy intersections in a moment. Um, but Kristen, how about, now you were, you have this long history with doing aerial surveys of marine mammals. At what point did you start thinking you could use AI to help you with some of the data processing? Um, you know, it's a funny story because it starts with a day after an airplane. Um, we collect photographs of North Atlantic right whales. It's amazing, actually. You can photograph them from over the top and recognize them as individual whales by a photograph of their head. So I was in the office one day after a flight going through photographs, trying to match whales. And one of them was particularly challenging. Um, you know, sometimes this can be really easy if the whale is distinctive. It's a whale that you've seen regularly and it's been well photographed. But on this particular occasion, the whale was very generic looking and I was feeling somewhat frustrated by my lack of success. Kind of took a break, got some coffee, looked at Facebook on my phone and was immediately greeted by the suggestion that I might tag myself in a friend's photo. Um, mm. So, you know, this is commonplace to us now, but this was, I think this must have been in 2013 or so. So this was the early days. And I was just incensed by, no, I don't need your help recognizing my own face, but I really wish you could help me with this whale that I've been struggling with. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's really kind of what started it. It rubbed salt in my wounds there on a frustrating day. And that really just began a long journey where I started to ask everyone I knew, you know, this technology clearly existed for humans anyway. And I wanted to know how could I apply it to whales. So that's that's what led me down this path. Well, that's so neat. There's a lot more to say about it, and I'll, I'll go into that. But uh, to kind of transition a bit, uh, so that was your experience. And Greg's work with Rip Currents and Jamisa's history and her undergraduate degree, all these things kind of came to my attention uh, when I was the NOAA Deputy Administrator. And I had I'd realized that there was all this great work going on with AI and across the agency, but none of it was really coordinated. And I, I knew that, you know, there were certain algorithms. In fact, so Kristen, you were looking to characterize these and better deal with these large amounts of images of whales where we had similar work. Uh, we had some uh, fisheries biologists up in a, um, Alaska, Alaska Fishery Science Center, looking at other marine mammals, actually, including whales with drone imagery. And, and et cetera. And I saw a lot of that. And I thought, you know, we could better coordinate this, I think. And and that's when, as I was thinking about doing this, I somehow learned about Jamisa's experience with genetic algorithms. It might have been when we were talking at, at the Women of Color event. Is that your memory, Jamise? So actually, it started from me um, requesting to shadow you. Oh, And so I shadowed you for a few days. And during our one-on-one um, -on -one conversations, we talked about, you know, my work experience. And you were explaining to me um, about the start of, you know, bringing some of these emerging technology areas together. And that led to um, me proposing to be your senior science advisor. And so oh, thank <laughs> um, you. Yes, with that, um, and like you said, you knew my background uh, included working with AI, and so we decided that that would be um, the best fit, and, and I must say it was such a wonderful experience. Well, let's talk about that. Thanks for refreshing my memory. Sometimes I don't remember the exact conversation, but, um, and tell us a little bit about how the, the work you did to coordinate this large agency's efforts in a very complex and cutting edge area. Uh, go, go on, please. Yes, you know, the mission of NOAA, um, it goes from the bottom of the ocean floor out to the sun. And in order for NOAA to, um, you know, meet its mission and provide monitoring and forecast and, and guidance tools, it takes a lot of observational data and, of course, um, 
numerical models in order for it to do its work. And so what we wanted to do was make sure um, that the line offices and the different mission areas were collaborating when it comes to using these emerging uh, technologies, including artificial intelligence. So in order to support that, um, you know, we work together um, through our different uh, teams in order to create the uh, NOAA AI strategy and also the strategic action plan. And Greg, who's also um, on the on the podcast right now, was also very instrumental in doing that. The NOAA AI strategy um, includes five goals. That's governance, which included the development of the NOAA Center for Artificial Intelligence, um, advancing AI research, accelerating research to applications, expanding partnerships, and of course, developing uh, the future workforce. And so bringing all of that um, together, you can certainly see the importance um, across the agency. We've also done things like responding to congressional um, requests, doing uh, analysis on how AI is used in order for us to provide um, the data that was needed and also um, important for the national um, AI strategy as well that was developed under the, the White House. And so there, again, is a lot of work um, that goes on within NOAA. And, and, you know, it's not just to support one area. It, it also includes, um, you know, making sure that our satellite um, observations are being utilized and assimilated into the models. Also looking, as we said, the blue economy, being able to do fish assessments um, and all of these things. And so it's important for us to provide that connection um, and support that across the agency. Well, well said there, Jamise. And, and yeah, and in fact, that tie into the blue economy is, is really uh, quite extensive. It can be from the very ocean-focused elements like fisheries uh, management and, and science to things like weather forecasting and the satellite data. And this is a big part of the current NOAA administrator's um, new blue economy push and concept where it's uh, an economy that's more informed by data uh, to drive economic and societal uh, benefits. And, and so and it was really interesting and fascinating. And AI is just obviously at the forefront of doing that, taking data and ensuring that it translates to benefits. Shamish, you did an amazing amount of work because not only did you coordinate internally with our executive committee for AI, uh, Greg was on that that committee. and um, But also, like you said, this was part of a larger uh, White House effort on AI that continues today. And I have to admit, it's nice to see if you watch the news for any length of time, you tend to think that there was never any consistency between the last administration and this one. And, and in fact, for a lot of NOAA's work, that's not true. Much of the work carried on, like our blue economy work, this AI work. And it's uh, it's great to see because these are things that really just benefit all of our country. Um, but, but thank you. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But here, here's a great example I, I have, and it's in the NOAA AI strategy as a little insert as an example. Why, why use AI? Why the big, why all the attention? And for one atmospheric model, a, a radiative transfer model that, that NOAA would run is a global model to help estimate performance uh, of, of that measurement from NOAA satellites, radiative transfer. It would take an older conventional model, global model to run this simulation 1.3 hours on a HPC, but using AI type of machine learning techniques, the algorithm could do it in a second. So orders of magnitude improvement in performance and, and computational efficiency. And that's why that's why all the buzz about AI as an example. Um, and well, there's a lot to say about that. And actually, I want to go to Greg now. So Greg, this this that example of the radiative transfer model I cited, points to the, to this like difference between a geophysical based model that, that uses the equations of motion if you will force equals mass times acceleration applied to earth systems and and and, and the ai approach is is data driven looking at the patterns in the data is that a fair way to describe it yeah yeah i th i think so i mean i think you know you get when you start relying on data-driven approaches, these AI models, um, 
the the computational efficiency, as you mentioned, Tim, is just it's it's just tremendous. Um, you know, they can take a while to train. Um, you know, you need some compute. You are going to need some some sizable you know servers or, or or cloud compute resources to train them potentially. But once they're trained, I mean, they can run in an instant or, or seemingly an instant. And so, uh, just huge improvements in, in in speed. And then I think where you really see the magic right, is when you start combining the two things, when you start combining uh, dynamical models, physics-driven models with AI approaches, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You know, you get you get to utilize what we know about the ocean and the atmosphere from physics and combine some aspects of, of you know, data-driven models, which, which improve speed and, and in some cases improve performance as well. Ah, that's that's great. Thank you for clarifying and expanding upon that. Well, can you tell us is is your the, now NOAA has transitioned this research of yours in a rip current prediction capability, and it, do can you explain how your model incorporates those elements if you don't mind getting a little technical? Yeah, sure. So so the the interesting part about the rip current model is it it builds on a physics-based dynamical model like we were just talking about. So uh, the National Weather Service operates something called the Nearshore Wave Prediction System. Um, And this is a physics-based model that provides waves and water levels uh, and predictions of waves and water levels everywhere along the United States coastline up to six days into the future. And, and, and that output, uh, understanding what's happening with the waves and the water levels is critical to predicting rip currents. You need to, you need to have that information if you, if you hope to understand if, if rip currents are likely. And so the way our model works is it actually takes what comes out of that, that physics-based model, uh, runs our machine learning approach uh, on that output, and then predicts the likelihood of, of hazardous rip currents, so 0 to 100% similar to to what you'd get out of a precipitation forecast, let's say. Um, and it predicts that every kilometer or so along the beach, every hour going six days into the future. So, so it's, it really is a combination of, of those two modeling approaches, which enable us to even think about doing this. That's excellent. I love that. And I was so excited to see that announcement uh, last year. So, and that's that, what a great application. It's really like you said, it kills me as a beachgoer, surfer, swimmer, that 100 people die a year in rip currents and it's preventable. So good on you for taking this really interesting technology and putting it to great use. And that the blue economy connection is actually quite significant because of the you know, really serious uh, tourism and recreation dollars that go into our coastal communities and, and beach uh, towns and, uh, and saving lives and keeping them safe is an important part of that. Uh, now, another interesting application, going back to Kristen, uh, you helped, you were part of an effort uh, to basically get these images of, of, of the endangered right whale and, um, and use that for monitoring. And I think the, app, the tool that you helped develop or were involved with is called Flukebook. Is that right? Yeah. So Flukebook is a platform, which I was quite quite lucky to discover it already existed. I basically was inventing it and trying to figure out how to recreate it when I found that it was already a a thing in operation for other species. Um, So Flukebook is a platform that coalesces different algorithms for different species into one common infrastructure where researchers can upload their photographs and, and run various algorithms. So once I had created a algorithm to match North Atlantic right whales, which was done somewhat unconventionally via a Kegel competition to sort of harness the talent of folks all over the world to create these algorithms. But then we were able to deploy that algorithm on the Flukebook platform. And and since then, there's been several other algorithms applied to North Atlantic right whales to match photographs um, from their head from a vessel, flukes, uh, and even from peduncle scarring. Wow, wow. Now, is that the word? I remember you getting a NOAA Administrator's Award, and um, I just came across the picture of that the other day. And it, was it for this work, or was it something more or different? It was. It was for this work. Um, I since have taken this sort of a, a similar 
vision of, of what could be possible to attempt to identify whales from VHR satellite imagery. Um, and of course, we won't be able to do it to the individual level in, in most cases, although one researcher was actually able to identify a whale individually from a satellite image recently, but that was quite unusual. Um, but I'm working closely with the Alaska Fishery Science Center on that project, which you mentioned is doing some incredible work in this area as well. And where we're trying to create some algorithms to detect whales from, from the VHR very high resolution imagery in collaboration with the Naval Research Lab and Microsoft AI for Good and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, that work's really exciting, but you know, it's really challenging because the these machine learning models require a large set of annotated data, which is quite challenging to generate um, in satellite imagery. You know, most of these images are just water and waves, so it's difficult to find the few examples of whales hidden in there. Yes, right. This is an important part of the, this discussion in terms of some people just think that that it's the, you know, it's all going to be easy. I read a really you'll love this. I read a, I was reading about DoD's AI work right now, the Department of Defense. And their, their current AI data officer, his name is Craig Martell, he said, he was quoted as saying, there is no magical pixie dust when it comes to AI. <laughs> no vendor is going to label your data for you. Uh, so he said, it's, it's incumbent upon the department to basically support all the offices and, and be a sort of a centralized uh, enabler for AI ready data. And what's so interesting about that, that I, here I am, I'm reading this in 2022. And, and one of their the sent the office that's overseeing this for the DoD is called the Joint um, is the Joint the Jake the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. And interestingly, what gave me the inspiration and Jamise mentioned this that part of the NOAA AI strategy was to organize the agency along AI better and it involved establishing a thing called the NOAA Center for AI, which would be that repository for data and training. So Jamise, can you talk a little bit about what our vision was for that? And if you if you happen to know where they are today, I actually do, but I'd love to know your, your, your contributions first. Sure. So with the NOAA Center uh, for Artificial Intelligence, you know, as we mentioned, um, NOAA already had a lot of projects uh, that utilized artificial intelligence as a tool um, to advance the, the science. And so we wanted to make sure that there was a, um, a central location that could support training, um, also be that repository for data, um, assist with um, understanding, you know, what's actually needed, the infrastructure um, that's needed even for the agency to continue um, to advance with the use of artificial intelligence. And so from there, uh, we continue to champion and advocate for the development of this center. And that included um, actually getting it uh, written within legislation as well. And so from the NCAI, um, I know that uh, it's being led now by Rob Redman. And when I, prior to my departure from, uh, from NOAA, I know that we did assessments to understand what the training needs across the agency were. Um, also supporting partnerships outside of the agency that are looking at um, AI-ready data and standards in order to support that. Um, and, and many other um, initiatives that, you know, would really advance uh, the agency um, in, and also expanding on those partnerships, like I mentioned. Um, so, you know, even when it comes to um, having conversations across, you know, the line offices, even though NCAI is housed under NESDIS, it certainly um, was designed to support the agency as a whole. Right, right. And uh, thank you for that. In fact, I have a, I just met with Rob Redman last week because as we kind of mentioned, the computational and data uh, requirements are really significant. And so I brought together a team from Microsoft Azure HPC uh, plus AI office, they call it, to uh, get with the NOAA Center for AI and see how they could work better together. And, um, and then, yeah, and I think, you know, for listeners, just kind of understanding this, like AI and the blue economy, it's about data and applying data for good. And we've given some great examples of that. And but the, the data needs, like Jamise mentioned, infrastructure, and there needs to be 
organizational efforts directed towards supporting it. And it's not whatever agency or private company is involved. It's, it's, um, it takes a lot of thought, I think. And a lot of this is a new paradigm. Um, but, but, but that's what therein is the excitement there. And, uh, so that's, you'll, you'll be glad to know, Jamise, that they're doing great. They need, they haven't gotten full funding yet, but they're, they're, they're meeting a lot of what they were, we, we wanted them to do. Um, but I'll come back to you and, and the Northern Gulf Institute in a second. Um, I want to come back to Greg, who, who's also been a part of this. And, um, Jamise mentioned, Greg, how, you know, Noah's been doing AI for three decades, which I know to be true. And uh, one thing I thought that was pretty interesting is th- that one example is the WaveWatch 3 model. And as you're, as you're in the Na- National Ocean Service, um, can you just talk to our listeners about how AI is used in this wave model and maybe what the, the benefits of, of, of this wave model are to the ver- some sectors in the blue economy? Yeah, that's right. So, so WaveWatch three uh, is a, is a, a wave model, and and it predicts you know waves across the globe, and and being able to predict waves is really important for a whole bunch of reasons. We talked about one um, just just now, you know, in terms of predicting rip currents. But but if you think about marine navigation, um, it's incredibly important for safe and efficient marine navigation to know you know when you might have hazardous waves, what your wave conditions are. When you think about coastal resilience and erosion, uh, potentially inundation impacts. Um, so, so, you know, for, for the blue economy um, and for, for public safety, understanding waves is really important. And, and one way we do that is with WaveWatch 3, um, which predicts waves across the globe. And it's a physical model, a dynamical model. So, you know, it uses physics um, and it's very computationally expensive to run um, and, and, but, but what we can do with that model is, is potentially improve you know, our prediction by combining a bunch of different model runs together. So if you're on the coast of, say, North Carolina, and you want to know what the waves are going to be like four or five days from now, depending on how you run your model, you can get slightly different answers. So you might end up with, say, two-foot waves or four-foot waves, depending on, on different atmospheric conditions and how you might run your physical model. And so... You know, traditionally, you might run, say, 10 model runs. Um, they call it a model ensemble. And, and a good estimation might be just to take an average. So, you know, run it 10 times, take the average, and that's your prediction. Uh, but it turns out that you could do a little bit better um, if you train an AI model on data to be able to say, you know, under these types of conditions, uh, what is the best combination of, of, these, of these different model runs to provide the best prediction? And so, uh, they've done some work to show that that with that, you can improve performance quite a bit and e- even enabling us to predict further in time, um, you know, a few days longer because uh, of how we're combining that information with AI. That's terrific. And what an important uh, use of, of AI, as you said, with the impacts on navigation and navigation safety and coastal resilience and, pr- and predicting inundation from storms. Yeah, that's just Great, great, Greg. And, um, you know, and so that leads me to want to now go to Chris, Kristen Kahn at the Northeast Fisheries Science Center because, you know, I think another really impactful uh, application that your teammates are doing is using um, AI and machine learning for a, a variety of fisheries applications. In fact, in the NOAA AI strategy, there's a little box call out that talks about you doing um, scallop surveys with imagery. Uh, and in something like redu- reducing the processing costs of looking at these images of scallops and trying to assess their um, abundance uh, and where it, you know, previous surveys would take three months of people pouring over data and they could get reduced to three days uh, and like a million images. So pretty that's a, another great example. Um, I want to talk a bit about your right whale surveys right now and, and the kind of the real important blue economy nexus of it. Because what you're, what's happening right now is you, you have a bit of a conflict with lobster fishermen um, and, and, and NOAA, your teammates that, that are trying to push for more ropeless gear. You also have a very interesting thing. I think NOAA has issued or will be issuing speed reduction restrictions, or maybe it's the Coast Guard, but if you could help us, let, let us know. Um, for boaters and vessels in these regions where right whales uh, migrate, 
and and there's you know various marine manufacturers and voting groups that are not too happy with that. And I you know, you know what I'm trying to get at is um, have you been looking at other ways to better monitor and and really support the the mixed uses that you're seeing in New England that are impacting these important endangered species? Can you comment on that at all? Yeah. So first of all, North Atlantic right whales are unfortunately really on the brink of extinction. They're threatened, you know, inadvertently, but they're threatened by entanglement with the ropes that connect lobster and crab traps to the seafloor and they're threatened by vessel strike. And, um, you know, they really, they really need some solutions in order for us to coexist. So there's a, a variety of efforts underway to mitigate the dangers from vessel strike and from entanglement. Um, and part of the, the desire there is for the science to more precisely pinpoint where these interactions occur. It's, it's very, very challenging because these animals um, swim quite, quite fast and quite far. They range from Florida up into Canada. And so they're, even though there's less than 400 animals, they really are kind of everywhere because they're so very mobile. And, um, and it's really a challenge for folks who, you know, say I've been fishing for generations and I've never seen a North Atlantic right whale where I fish, they're not here. And of course that's in many cases true. Uh, at the same time, from the perspective of a North Atlantic right whale, every day they encounter lots and lots and lots of rope. Um, and, and even 85% of whales actually have scars from a previous entanglement, which is just mind blowing to think that 85% of them have had a run in with the gear. So, so it's a real perception challenge. You know, I think the, the human perception and the whale perception are quite different on this topic. Um, so the, but there's the good news is there's a lot of incredible science, both to document the location of these whales, as well as to find solutions to the problems. So there's um, aerial surveys that are done routinely off the coast over known right whale habitat to document their, their distribution. There's a lot of acoustics out there as well, moored buoys, as well as mobile gliders. Um, and there's shipboard surveys as well, of course. And so there's really a tremendous amount known, you know, given that this is a wild animal that spends large amounts of its life underwater. We really know an incredible amount about this species. They're known as individuals. Many of them, we really know their whole lineage. We know what year they were born, how many calves they've had, when they were last seen. Um, we really have a wealth of information. But of course, for folks who are facing fishing closures and speed restrictions, they'd like even more information and they'd like to minimize the amount, um, you know, the amount that they're not able to fish in a particular area. So one innovative solution is the development of this on-demand or ropeless gear, which is a really amazing application of technology to solve this problem. And the idea is that instead of a rope connecting a trap on the seafloor to a buoy at the surface always, that rope is, is stowed or in some cases not even present at all. It's not in the water column presenting the danger to the whale. And then what happens is the vessel can use an acoustic trigger to re either release rope or release some sort of inflatable lift bag to get that gear to the surface when it's needed. So it's a really incredible innovation that allows both the whales and the fishing industry to, to coexist and to thrive. And there's been just some incredible advancements over the past five or 10 years on that topic. And it's really getting quite exciting. Good, good. Well, good to see those solutions. And of course, all informed by the monitoring you've done and the application of machine learning to it. And it, it I, I'd like to see, I know that not it's still being developed, but there was this idea of real-time alerting possibly, and, and just in general, enhancing your monitoring overhead with uh, undersea monitoring. One example that I, I think is a great uh, one to cite is in the Pacific, your colleague, um, Dr. Ann Allen at the NOAA Pacific Islands Fishery Science Center 
she went and looked at 170,000 hours of acoustic recordings of humpback whales all around the Pacific, which is a very large body of water. So you have a lot of hours, a large spatial extent. And uh, I think the estimate was it would have taken someone listening to it 24 hours a day. It would have taken them 19 years just to listen to it all, <laughs> let alone process it and analyze it. And uh, she partnered with Google to uh, use some machine learning techniques on these acoustic data to better character to characterize well in just an order of a few days their their uh, distribution and where throughout the year where they tended to be and migrate, which is really amazing actually. When knowing that information, my point being is being able to now better resolve the their their movement and their distribution will allow better. Uh, manage the population and conserve it just like you need to do with in New England with North Atlantic right whales. So there's there's definitely opportunity in terms of data collection and uh, AI-enabled processing. Um, so, but moving back, I, I would like to go back to Jamise and um, talk another about a number of other applications, you know, and just areas around this whole topic of AI. And what I thought was really a, an important part of what we, we were doing in the agency-wide effort, Jamise, was looking at the kind of the workforce development aspect of this. And, um, you know, that was part of the charter of the NOAA Center for AI, it still is, is to develop training uh, pipeline, basically, and, per, you know, and ensure an AI-ready workforce. And um, I, it, I'm curious if you want to say any more about that. And I, I wanted to also ask you if you can remember, um, do you know of any work going on at, in, uh, at, at your current institution of Mississippi State University and the Northern Gulf Institute? Certainly. So um, as you mentioned, with the uh, NOAA Center for Artificial Intelligence, um, one of the things that I recall working um, with NCAI on was understanding what the uh, training needs were um, across the agency. And there was an assessment done there in order to um, strategically plan, you know, uh, training um, modules for the workforce. One thing that, you know, is important to communicate is that artificial intelligence um, is not necessarily being put in place to uh, take over positions or anything. Um, it's important that we continue to um, train the current workforce and, of course, um, train the future workforce in order to drive uh, innovation. And so that is one of the things that we were looking at. And that included um, not only looking at what the training needs were um, across the agency, but being able to partner um, with professors and academic institutions um, as well as, as other agencies. Now here at Mississippi State, um, it's really exciting to be here and to work under uh, the Northern Gulf Institute, which is actually a NOAA cooperative institute. So I'm still, um, I still have you know strong connections to the agency, which is uh, really exciting. Um, you know, another thing that we did. Tim, uh, was we established the NOAA Science and Technology Synergy Committee under the NOAA Science Council. Um, and, and when we did that, it included um, not only artificial intelligence, but it was AI, uncrewed systems, uh, citizen science, omics, cloud, and data. And the opportunity that I have here um, with NGI and at Mississippi State is to really see the research and development um, that is going on that honestly supports all of those um, areas. I'm very passionate about um, driving innovation and looking at how technologies can support um, the advancement of our science. Within NGI, we actually have um, four research themes that support the NOAA mission, and that looks at climate change, um, ecosystem management, coastal hazards, and also the effective and efficient um, management of data in, in its systems. Also here in Mississippi State, we have the High Performance Computer Collaboratory that houses um, the NOAA Orion supercomputer. And as we talked about before, you certainly need the compute capacity um, for these emerging technologies such as AI. And what we're doing here um, with Orion is being able to support the research and development uh, needs of NOAA. And that includes, you know, um, expanding the compute capacity to um, 
do things like the real-time uh, experiment for the hurricane analysis and forecast system um, that's under development. And so, um, you know, when it comes to training the future workforce, we, of course, have programs like computer science, but we also have a data science program here, which is uh, unique for not only the state of Mississippi, but also, um, you know, our Gulf uh, Coast region. And so we are training that future workforce that will be able to go into um, agencies and industry and be able to use these tools such as artificial intelligence. Um, we also have projects that consist of using uncrewed systems um, and even the, the actual uh, development of these autonomous systems. So there's a lot of work being done here that can um, you know, support the emerging technologies um, across the board and especially with atmospheric and uh, oceanographic research. Wow, wow. Well, this is exciting to me because I too am a big champion for innovation. And I think what you point out to is here we are, we're talking about AI and the blue economy. And and once you go kind of walk the dog a little bit, um, refer, you see that uh, you can't really constrain yourself to maybe one technology area because there, there's so much synergy between them. And you talked about the synergy committee that you led at NOAA. Uh, linking these various other committees, the AI and the uncrewed systems, and for and if you let's just t- well, take a few uncrewed systems, autonomous systems, drones. There's a whole ton of AI going on in there. there there's just a, a nexus between artificial intelligence and aut- autonomous systems and vehicles. And then when you look at bioinformatics or omics, that's like biological big data all the processing of that data, like next generation gene sequencing data, environmental DNA, that's all machine learning based. And then and then we have these other underpinning areas of cloud and data and HPC, which none of those other areas can actually be, be, be done. You can't really advance anything in AI or autonomy or omics without having data infrastructure and, and the data processes and processing. So it's kind of, it's just fascinating to see all these awesome areas just move forward. Um, but, uh, and so you know, let me get, let me go to you, Greg. I'm interested in the ocean service. I'm going to be meeting with your boss next week, uh, Nicole LaBeouf, the director of the National Ocean Service. And, and we're going to talk about HPC, cloud-based HPC. And you being an oceanographer, ocean modeler, yeah, working with the NOAA's RIP current forecasting, but also the co-ops program, which maybe you could talk a little bit about co-ops for us and how that's a real great new blue economy capability. And I don't know, I'm curious if you have, if there are any AI connections to co-ops or um, or HPC connections in, in the future. Yeah, so, so co-ops, the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, um, our office, you know, probably better known as the Tides and Currents Office of NOAA, and and so we operate uh, among among a bunch of different things. We operate uh, water level sensors or tide gauges across the U.S. We have over 200 of them. Uh, they operate in real time, delivering water level information every six minutes, um, and they've been operating in some cases, you know, at at, at locations for over 100 years, and and so that. You know, extent of observations is really important um, for a whole bunch of things, um, including, you know, uh, safe and efficient marine navigation, for coastal hazards, for understanding storm surge, uh, for high tide flooding, uh, and of course, sea level rise, uh, tracking and monitoring uh, and predicting long term sea level rise. So, um, so really critical information and kind of, you know, uh, baseline data for a lot of other types of products and, and, and information. Um, and, and right now, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we're looking at, uh, working on u- utilizing AI for is to help us, uh, better quality control and process our water level data. So, you know, when we have 200 and something stations, that means that we're bringing in millions of data points every month. And, and although we can automate, uh, the quality control of those data points a little bit, uh, are, you know, historically the approach we've used to do that still relies on people. And so, you know, we have a team of, of about 10 people and, and one of their primary jobs is reviewing data to make sure the quality is good, um, to, 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 you know, remove bad data points, 
um, and to provide the best water level data possible because you know the, the, the use cases are so important, we want it as accurate as it can be. Um, and so what we're working on is developing an AI algorithm that can basically do that process for us. So uh, it can go through and be trained on all of our historic data and understand, you know, given given what the sensor is saying, uh, given what the, the observations show, uh, it can predict if your data point is good or not, and and if it's not, it can it can remove it and, and fill it with with our backup data and things like that. Yeah, I remember. Yes, yes, that's awesome. Yeah, and so it, you know, I I think we we think it can save a, a, a it really just make the process much more efficient and free up people's time to do other more you know kind of, um, you know, less repetitive tasks. And and then also it can help us turn around data much quicker. So right now, typically it's about a month after the data is collected before we can say, okay, this is good. It's verified. We know this quality is is great. Um, and, and we're hoping that, you know, if we can do this with AI, that process could be, instead of a month, it could be a day, you know, a day from now or maybe less. So, um, so it has really the potential to transform how we deliver our water level data um, and, 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 and make it much more efficient. Great. That's a great example. I do remember that very well. Um, good, great stuff. Love your program, love co-ops and, uh, and that how, how you make, I've, I've been an, I've been a, an officer of the deck on Navy ships. I've pulled in and out of port and the, the safety that you provide and, and the assurance to our ports and, and our, our, the Marine transportation system is just an amazing return on investment. Um, now I want it, it, talking about this really great capability. Uh, I want to go to you, Kristen, because you you touched on um, satellite data and this geospatial artificial intelligence for animals. I guess you call it Gaia. Is that right? Gaia. Yeah, Gaia. And I'm curious if you've started to look at all these really advanced satellite imager, commercial satellite imaging companies out there like Planet. And you've probably watched some of the news about the war in Ukraine, and there are all these companies are now providing imagery for Ukrainian armed forces, and at very high resolution. Uh, what what do you see as the future for that work, that that Gaia work with all these new commercial providers coming online with really high res data? I think there is some incredible potential because if you think about. What, where we understand particularly marine mammal distribution off the coast, it's a really small footprint right off of our coasts, you know, that we can get planes and vessels and acoustics out there. And there's incredible, vast expanses of ocean that we know very, very little about. And so it's going to take a while. We're definitely not there yet. But the potential that this VHR satellite imagery holds to really access these inaccessible regions of the ocean is it's really exciting. Um, so what we've been doing so far, well, first of all, we've built just some tremendous partnerships because, as you know, work like this requires a village. So we've got a, a fantastic group of people working on this and working closely with the Alaska Fisheries Science Center, um, with Microsoft AI for Good, with the Naval Research Laboratory, and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And together, we're trying to, to turn this kind of proof of concept academic research where we know that whales can be seen in this very high resolution imagery. There's been publications showing that, um, you know, via manual inspection of an image, folks can see an individual whale in them and, and be fairly confident of the species identification. So what we'd like to do is turn this proof of concept that it's possible to detect a whale on a satellite image and really make an operational system where we can churn the crank, churn the crank on large volumes of imagery. But it's quite a challenge because, as you know, machine learning models really require a huge amount of data, labeled data, to be able to build accurate algorithms. And so our challenge is finding examples of whales in the satellite imagery. And there's really no other way before you have those algorithms created other than to manually inspect the images, which is quite time consuming. Yeah, so right now we're we're working on going through the imagery and we've got a, a fantastic tool developed by Microsoft for our work that's an active learning loop where the imagery is being run over a, an interesting points detector, which is, you know, 
just showing something that looks different than the pixels beside it, for example, just to try to weed out some of that empty ocean. Serving up those images to our biologists to annotate because we really need folks with experience in identifying marine mammals from the air to look at the imagery. So NOAA scientists are then looking at that imagery, annotating it, you know, is this a whale, is this a wave, is this a vessel? And then that labeled data is being fed back in in an iterative process to try to improve the model detection. So that's quite exciting because it's a little faster than the traditional fully manual approach. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's something here, and I shared it with you. I wrote an article in The Hill a few months back, and it was titled, "Combat." it was about illegal fishing. And it was titled, The U.S. Can Do Better to Combat Illegal Fishing with Commercial Space Innovation. And this was in June. And and it, this I, what I talked about is using imagery like you're talking about, but um, applying edge processing on orbit to speed up the machine learning analysis. And here it was about finding illegal fishing boats in the imagery, but it could be finding whales like you're doing and, and just accelerate that. And what I think what I'm getting at is, you know, potentially in the future with uh, edge processing in space, we could be sending real-time alerts to ships about whales that are along their track. <laughs> oh, goodness. Your visions even exceed mine. That's an incredible thought. We, uh, we are a long way from there now. We Currently, the process of um, tasking an image and downloading it is taking us close to a month. Of course, we can yeah, exactly. Certainly, certainly, it is possible even today to do it faster. Um, but I, edge computing on a satellite is a, an incredible concept. I know that, that some of the biologists at the Alaska Fishery Science Center are doing some incredible edge computing work on drone payloads for seal detection. Um, so yeah, that's an incredible thought. Um, and you know what? What's great is that we already have the tools to really share and disseminate this information to the public because aerial survey sightings and acoustic detections and shipboard detections for North Atlantic right whales, for example, are already shared and pretty close to real time in a publicly accessible interface called WhaleMap, the website's whalemap.org. And this data is put there, you know, as soon as the scientists can get it there, the folks land on the airplane and, and may pause for, for dinner and then upload all of this information into the platform. So it's really incredible, you know, the evening, you know, sort of by 6 or 7 p.m., you can see all of the data that was collected in a given day, including the effort distribution, which also I think is really important because, you know, it means something quite different to not see whales in an area that someone's looked versus not see whales where there's been no research effort. So that platform already exists. And once we have a system for detecting whales via satellite, it, it could be shared there as well as to other similar platforms, you know, there's OBIS CMAP, there's a whale alert app. There's quite a lot of other displays that the information could be disseminated to. Um, there's also various maritime domain awareness systems, such as Proteus, which is a, a vessel detection system that's essentially already doing this kind of work uh, for the detection of vessels via high-resolution satellite imagery. So, so we just kind of need to plug the whales in, but first we need to build up that data set of known detections enough to build some more sophisticated algorithms. Right on. Well, yes, there's, you have your work cut out for you, um, but so, it, it is exciting. It is. It is. There, like I said, I think you did the edge computing in orbit. I think uh, things are going to happen sooner than you think. I mean, just the revisit rates and the resolution is coming down. Um, you know, instead of the, the sort of traditional approach of launching one commercial satellite, now companies are launching a fleet of commercial satellites. And so I think we're going to see the access to imagery greatly expanding in the coming years as well. Right on. And there's so many great ocean and blue economy applications of that. So I might just have a whole separate show on, on space, on the space innovations that are occurring uh, but thank you, Kristen. Oh, you certainly could. Yeah, I'm going to ask Jamise, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm looking at kind of the what I wanted to cover here today. And there was just one area I probably haven't done justice with. And I just want to see if you could share a little bit of your 
knowledge, Jamis, about using AI for either weather model data assimilation or or just general weather modeling, because so their blue economy is so uh, dependent upon accurate forecasts for safety of navigation, for coastal resilience. And uh, is is being an atmospheric scientist, I, I didn't know if there's anything you might just want to add to our discussion that we haven't touched on. Yes. So um, as we mentioned, artificial intelligence, um, particularly within within NOAA and the National Weather Service, um, has been used for many years. And the basis of that or the, or the start of that was to support um, numerical weather prediction, which, of course, provides the forecasting capabilities uh, for the National Weather Service. And in using um, artificial intelligence, it was, um, you know, one of the early projects um, was to provide data assimilation uh, for satellite data within the numerical models, which supports the initialization, the start of the models in order for them to do their predictions. Um, So that is something that continues. And of course, as um, the as we have evolved with our technology and we get more and more data um, and more uh, compute resources, of course, we're expanding um, through all of the AI uses, as you mentioned before, the machine learning as well as the deep learning in order to support um, research and development for numerical weather predictions. And that includes, you know, the physical parameterization, similar to what I talked about earlier, making sure that we are using um, the right physical parameters for our environmental uh, modeling, the compute performance um, that we talked about, AI being able to um, reduce the compute time, which saves cost and allows um, researchers and and scientists to be able to um, expand and accelerate these scientific um, advancements. In addition to that, from the operational standpoint, um, artificial intelligence is used to aid in weather uh, warnings and also impact-based decision support service. Um, Being able to have algorithms that can bring a lot of the data as well as the uh, modeling capabilities together to support the um, development of the warnings and and watches that are put out um, to save the lives of the public is also an area uh, that's extremely important. And then there are another um, wide range of of areas um, that we talked about with, you know, making sure that where there are areas of perhaps sparse data um, from satellite imagery, you know, we've tested uh, the use of AI and able to be able to overcome um, those areas as well. And so there are many applications um, for AI within meteorology and atmospheric sciences. Of course, it's not a solution for everything, but it's certainly a tool, you know, that um, will continue to evolve um, and be able to support the initiatives um, there. As I mentioned, within um, NGI here at the Northern uh, Gulf Institute at Mississippi State, there are projects that are funded that also use machine learning um, and artificial intelligence, and those support, um, you know, modeling of droughts and understanding um, the climate change uh, and and how those things are are connected. Also, um, some of our scientists um, were very instrumental in using the Viami software um, for stock assessments that reduced the uh, the analysis time I think by ninety eight percent was what um, we calculated previously, and going back to what you mentioned about drones, um, some of the work that is done here in NGI also um, uses drones, our uncrewed systems for um, flood monitoring and being able to provide that data back into modeling uh, systems as well, and of course you know, again, that synergy between AI and these other um, technologies is is really important and what will drive, um, continue to drive that innovation. So, Yes, there's so much to look forward to it and uh, and so much has been accomplished too. And I think our listeners can understand why I, I asked you to, I picked you to be the senior scientist for AI at NOAA because you definitely have command of this awesome field. Uh, thank you so much. I, I would love to go on, but we're at the end here. And so I'll just ask for any final contributions or thoughts, and it can be any 
anything. And I'll go, begin again with you, Jamise, the Deputy Director at the Northern Gulf Institute um, and Lead for Strategic Partnerships at Mississippi State University. Uh, Jamise, anything last to say? just want to say thank you so much for including me in this important conversation. It's been great, um, you know, to, to reconnect with you as well as um, colleagues at, at NOAA. Um, like I said, I worked closely with Greg on many of the uh, AI initiatives that we were able to move forward and accomplishments um, that we had. So it's been great. And I look forward to, you know, in my current position, continuing to support um, the acceleration of emerging technologies and training the future workforce. Well, you're doing it. You're doing a great job, Jamise. And I'm, I'm so glad, too, to see that happening. Uh, congratulations on that position you have. And I'm um, looking forward to another discussion sometime down the road. Thank you. And I'll, I'd like to also ask Greg, uh, Greg Dusek, at the Chief Scientist for the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, Co-ops at NOAA. Anything else you'd like to say, Greg? Well, just thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to, to be part of the discussion, uh, reconnect with yourself and Jamise after you know, all the, the great work I think we were able to accomplish uh, in AI over the last few years. And, and, and also, I, I just think I wanted to add, you know, one of the things that came out of, I think, your leadership and Jamise's leadership on this topic at NOAA is just the enthusiasm towards pursuing uh, AI as a, as a, as a tool, uh, to be able to really improve what we do at NOAA. I mean, we had our, every year we had this NOAA AI workshop, uh, which, which, which started, um, started while, while you were, uh, here at NOAA and, and, you know, I think we get like four or 500 people coming to that workshop. Um, and it's just a ton of enthusiasm. And I think that's credit to you both. And, and I think just shows the, the, I think really, but this is just the tip of the iceberg, and I think there's going to be so much more uh, new new breakthroughs coming from AI, and, and it's super exciting. So really looking forward to seeing what's next. Hey, Greg, I thank you for that. That's I wasn't thinking of that initially, but you're right. It would actually that was a lot of the motivation for me convening the different S and T committees uh, and continuing this show. Actually, is that. These topics are really energizing to a lot of people. They see the value, and uh, and so wonderful. I th thanks for that endorsement, <laughs> and uh, I'll take them whenever I can get them. Thank you, Greg. And lastly, but certainly not least, uh, Kristen Kahn, fishery biologist with NOAA's Northeast Fishery Science Center in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Kristen, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and it's, you know, there's just so much potential for the future. So it's exciting to be thinking about what the future may hold and to be working towards that. Absolutely. You bet. Well, great. You have all been so wonderful. Thank you for helping this to become an awesome show in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at artificial intelligence in the American Blue Economy. Please join us for our January episode. We, we will look at how microbiology in the field of omics contributes to the American blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Mm -hmm.